Yeah, and it looks it's very similar to an anaphylactoid reaction. Mm-hmm. And Except it's maybe, hard to I'm not sure. Do, do they get wheezing? That's probably the one. Can do, but it is yep. sort of. Um, I mean, so it is basically yeah. like an anaphylactoid reaction. So yeah. they get urticarial yeah. red rashes, yeah. they get hypotension, tachycardia. They've had got massive mast cell degranulation, yeah. but they won't have significantly elevated tryptase levels. So right. that can be used if you're not sure what's going on. Okay. That can be- Um, hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week I have a couple of guests. I've got uh, Jody Jamison, who's one of the um, senior registrars, soon to be a consultant in our department. Uh, welcome, Jody. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for having and me. And we've also got another guest from our pharmacy department here at Kingwood, um, Claire Kendrick, who's also agreed to come and share some knowledge with us about um, an important topic, which is some of the um, antibiotics that we use. So thanks for coming along, Claire. Thank you for having me. Anything else you want me to? Um, tell tell the audience about yourself. Oh, not too much. I've just <laughs> been at King Eddie's for about five years now, so happy to be a part of this and okay. share what I have. <laughs> so the um, what was the inspiration for this um, podcast came from the talk that Jody gave us. Uh, it was a few months ago now, wasn't it, Jody? But we had um, February. February, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had um, uh, some questions and some cases which sort of stimulated our thoughts about um, antibiotic prophylaxis and some of the sort of more rare antibiotics that we have to use and some of the micro alerts and um, all these things are um, relevant to most people who work uh, in theatre and, and have um, patients coming through. So we've, it was actually really interesting. I found it really interesting. So we're going to base the discussion today sort of around your, loosely around your talk, Jody. but um, if anyone, anyone here has got any comments we'll just interrupt and just sort of explore um, any any issues that come up. So, Sounds good. Um, do you want to start things off, Jody? I think you had a case as what you sort of based at the start of your talk around. Yeah, so I presented a case study, uh, Mrs MM, she was a King Eddie's patient, a 34-year-old, having her second baby. She was having an elective caesarean this time because last time she'd had an emergency caesarean. She had a history of hypothyroidism, um, gestational diabetes controlled by diet. She had a BMI of 35, no no, no known allergies, and she had this micro B alert. So um, that's her history. We, when the case started, uh, she had our surgical safety checklist. Antibiotic prophylaxis was discussed, as it's always discussed, and the patient's gone on to receive kevazolin mm-hmm. as uh, prophylactic antibiotics, two grams. She's had an uneventful surgery, hospital stay, and she's gone home. But 17 days later, she's represented quite unwell. She's febrile. Uh, her surgical wound site has dehissed and it's discharging. She's admitted to hospital and she was found to have a MRSA wound infection and a bacteremia. So the question that I posed to the audience was, what does the micro B alert mean? And what antibiotics should this patient have received? How do you give those yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a loaded question. I guess we all here now because <laughs> we know what it talks about. We know what micro B is. But um, what? How many people in the audience knew um, what micro B was? Did you get a, uh, again, a, a rough maybe, idea? Yeah, I feel that most people knew that micro B meant 
that she had MRSA, but it could be the people in the audience that day or, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it is, I mean, you know, micro B is like a bit obscure, isn't it? Like if someone came in this and, it, and it said on their sticker or their alert, this person has MRSA, then it, that's obvious. But if it says like some code or some number, then we don't all walk around with these in our head, do we? So, so it is a bit tricky. Uh, but we are going to go into detail a little bit later about some of the micro alerts, aren't they? But the, probably the main ones uh, that we miss or seem to miss the most, which is important, are the MRSA ones, aren't they? Yeah, and yeah. part of that, I think, is because patients with micro B don't don't come with contact precautions. It's standard precautions, so mm. it can be missed, yeah. um, the micro B. Yeah, I'm sure that I have um, not given the correct antibiotics to many of these patients over the years. I think in general that um, they don't, in general we can get it wrong, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and I guess it doesn't um, show up because if they, cause most of the time they get their skin cleaned with some cloex or iodine or something and, and then they have the surgery and they don't get a wound infection and and um, it all, it's all goes okay. But but presumably the kefazolin that we gave probably didn't cover the bugs that were on their skin. Yeah, oh, not, not the MRSA, definitely no, not. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, do you want to talk about what, what was the next? Yeah. So I, I then, I, then the I just wanted to talk generally about surgical site infections and what their impact are, and what we as anaesthetists, our how we can have an impact on them. So surgical site infections uh, occur; they're, they're common. They occur in two to five percent of the surgical population, and they've got a significant impact on the patient and the healthcare system particularly for, you know, this patient who's got a 17-day-old neonate at home having to be readmitted to hospital unwell, um, the impact that this would have um, on her and her family. Um, And um, just about then moving on to about what we... what things can be done to prevent surgical site infections. So Mm. in the pre-operative period, there's things like... um, identifying and treating infections that are remote to the surgical site uh, prior to any procedure that is elective, counselling patients on things like smoking, cessation, um, trying to get good glycemic control, adequate nutrition, um, the showering uh, with chlorhexidine, um, body wipes, those sorts of things. Did you have anything? Yeah. Sounds good. (laughs) Um, And then intra-op again, the skin prep, the surgical technique, um, changing gloves prior to the um, fascia or subcuticular sub- layer closure. If it's a, a incision and drainage, ensure that you've that adequate debridement has been done. And this is where we, as anaesthetists, giving prophylactic antibiotics can um, do our part to prevent surgical site infections. Um, then there's a whole list of things in the post-operative period, uh, including um, an aseptic technique for changing and removing dressings, using dressings that are most appropriate for the type of wound that you're dealing with, um, avoiding topical um, antimicrobial products. And, yeah, so those are the, the general principles. And in terms of prophylactic antibiotics, so we want to use them only when indicated. It's this balance of preventing a an infection that could be have serious consequences yep. and overusing antibiotics. Mm. What are the downsides of that? So the the um, selection of resistant organisms. Yeah, and you can get allergic reactions and um, what else? Affect someone's microbiome. Mm. Yeah. So diarrhea. 
<laughs> I don't know anyone here. There's probably people listening who've had diarrhea when they had augmenting for a sore throat or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so choosing the case where it's indicated, uh, giving it uh, appropriately timed with the surgical incision, and most cases are only going to need the single preoperative dose, so not continuing antibiotics after if there's no good reason to. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's good. Um, you mentioned uh, surgical um, procedures that don't need antibiotics. What, what are some of the more common ones we see here you know, in the ONG sort of surgical specialties? So at this hospital, um, procedures like a hysteroscopy, a DNC, insertion of IUD, uh, marinas, those sorts of procedures generally, unless there's some exception, there's no indication for antibiotics. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um Micro alerts. Is that the next thing on the list? So we were going to talk a bit about timing of the antibiotics. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's That's a good idea. So for caesareans, um, the therapeutic guidelines and our local King Eddy guidelines, um, the the indication is for um, two grams of kefazolin within 60 minutes of um, surgical incision. And then if the patient is... Um, a BMI of over 40 and is there a weight over 120 kilos to consider 3 grams? Consider the 3 grams dosing? It's still a bit contentious among, depends who you ask really because there is um, not fantastic evidence behind the the increasing dose and I don't think they have studied well like in big clinical trials if it actually does have a significant impact in the the bigger patients Um, but then it comes down to the is there any harm in, in giving that increased dose? Well, kefazolin being a, a relatively safe medication, yep. it, it's probably one of the ones that you could potentially push if you did feel the need to have a higher dose for certain patients. And sometimes that's not necessarily... They're completely fine. The only thing that's different about them is their increased BMI weight, but if they've potentially got any other risk factors for infection as well, then perhaps you'd be leaning more towards giving the higher dose. But I think it's very individualised at the moment, so most guidelines will say consider (laughs) as a sort of general... Which I think is generally what we do here. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm just trying to go on my personal observation, is that most of the time people over 120 kilos, we do give three grams now, but... But, yeah, you wouldn't get into trouble if you didn't. But certainly when they get really big, um, I think people do mm-hmm. um, yep. give three grams. Yep. Um, any, any budding researchers out there, there you go. <laughs> Here's a good study. <laughs> Definitely a gap, so <laughs> please feel free. Um, and I did just look into timing briefly, mainly because um, working here at King Eddie's, once I was asked by a patient to withhold the antibiotics until the baby had her baby had been delivered um so there is evidence there that we should be giving the prophylaxis before skin incision and that there's not um great evidence of uh fetal exposure having um impacts on the newborn so there was a meta-analysis in 2008 that showed that and then there was a Cochrane review in 2014 that showed that antibiotics before caesarean are almost halving the risk of the woman with in terms of um, post-operative infection and that there was no evidence of harm to the baby. Mm. Yeah, that's it's good to be able to discuss that with the mother, isn't it? Because mm. that does come up occasionally. I think patients are sort of becoming more aware and reading a lot more around antibiotics yeah, and the microbiome. And yeah, everything. and they're worried so about um, their 
you know, the fetus um, or the, their newborn baby and yep. develop, you know, getting them right microbiome and mm-hmm. should they or should they not have antibiotics. I'm sure this comes up probably more often when, when you're dealing, helping the neonatologists and yeah. NICU and uh, that sort of thing. Is It's probably more an issue that they see a lot more than we do. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um so, yeah, we can talk about microalerts now. Yes, yeah, so that's good. So we don't want to go into a deep dive. Oh, well, we were just discussing this before we started as well, actually. We're not sure, um, but the microalerts we're going to talk about are the ones that are um, used in Western Australia, and we have no idea, actually, we, we um, whether these are sort of standardised across Australia or even internationally. So it's pr- probable that they're not. I imagine there's a bit of a variation around the place. Um, so if you're outside Western Australia, it's likely that you have a different system, but I'm sure that follows the same sort of principles yep so we have a lot of different micro alerts um micro b c y g h j k um no one's expected to remember what any of them are but it's quite easy at this hospital to access documentation that will tell you what they mean um, and how the patient's treated in terms of um what sort of precautions they need for staff members um in terms of uh, infection present, uh, prevention and, and management in terms of screening these patients, every patient on admission or presentation will get asked three screening, screening questions when they present to this hospital regarding whether they've been an inpatient um, in a hospital or residential care facility interstate or overseas, whether they've been a healthcare worker in those settings interstate or overseas, both within the last 12 months, and if they're from a WA residential care facility. And based on the answers yes or no, they'll get um, in, the, in the preoperative period screened uh, for multi-resistant organisms, and that's how they get these labels, um, and we use the micro and a letter system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the ones pertinent for this case and and probably that are the most straightforward in terms of what antibiotics they need if they come to theatre is the micro B and C, which are MRSA. Yep. Um, so that's what the, the case study uh, in, in this case had. And it's really that these patients, as well as getting kefazolin to cover MSSA, they need uh, a dose of vancomycin in the preoperative period to cover for the MRSA and, and prevent a postoperative infection. Yep. Um, that's good. So I thought uh, we'd sort of try and utilise Claire's knowledge and um, have a sort of group discussion about um, some of the sort of issues surrounding uh, non... Well, yeah... Um, less commonly encountered, it's probably a nice phrase, uh, antibiotics. So some some listeners probably know some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, but I think it's good to refresh it and or even learn it for the first time if we're not sure. Because uh, some of these antibiotics that we're going to discuss do have some toxicities and I think we should know them pretty well when we're giving them because we can cause harm if we don't administer the antibiotics in a safe manner. So it's good to go over that and remind everyone how to do it properly. Um, and the three that we decided to, to discuss, because they're sort of the more common of the uncommon ones, if that's a, if that's a <laughs> correct English, uh, vancomycin, uh, clindamycin and gentamicin. I guess gentamicin is pretty common, um, but there's still obviously a lot of toxicity with it if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about vancomycin, Claire? What do you reckon? Because I, I think that's the one that's caused cause a lot of a few headaches. Um, yes, definitely a hot topic at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> 
and probably the the more common of the less common ones that you will see in the perioperative setting as well because it is our go-to um, prophylactic antibiotic for anyone colonised or infected with MRSA. Um, so yeah, as Jody said, if they come in with micro B, with the, which is community acquired MRSA, or micro C, which is hospital acquired MRSA, they will require surgical prophylaxis with vancomycin. Um, and generally, vanc dosing, first of all, um, it's not simple, <laughs> definitely not simple at all. Very dependent on the patient's weight and also their renal function. So ideally, you would have their, their UECs available um, before you're working out their dose. And in terms of surgical prophylaxis, we, we have tried to standardise dosing as much as possible to make it easy and practical. But essentially, it's based on a 15 milligram per kilogram dose. Um, and there's a nice little table in the Kingetti's vancomycin monograph, which is available on the internet, um, just to help guide practice and have it at the tips of your fingertips. Um, <laughs> yep. So most patients, you know, 50 to 75 kilos, you expect a one gram dose. They're above 75 kilos, you expect a 1.5 gram dose. And the key with administering that dose is both concentration and rate. Can I just quickly ask, so mm. this is confusing for a lot of people, I think, is the, like the weight. So are we using the actual weight, the ideal body weight, the lean body weight? There's all these different all formulas these different that float around now. It's confusing. Yeah. So with um, vancomycin, it's dosed on actual body weight. Okay. So if someone is 200 kilos, we would actually... Yeah. So there, there is a max. If someone was that big, you'd definitely be calling in the experts and contacting yep. um, a microbiologist, clinical microbiologist, for their advice because it is at a balance of getting optimum vancomycin levels but also not becoming toxic and causing okay. side effects. Yeah, I think so there's a maximum dose of 1.5 anyway, isn't there? You said, Usually so I should. I feel most of our patients get 1.5. Yeah. <laughs> 75, 75 kilos. Yeah, that's true. Probably most of them are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the, in that surgical sort of perioperative setting, thinking about higher doses needing a longer infusion time as well, yeah. you would hope that you wouldn't go more than 1.5. Um, so then it comes to sort of what do you put it in with the fluid because yep. there is a recommended maximum concentration of 10 milligram per mil um, and that's basically documented everywhere you look. There's no other data to say that you can do it more concentrated than that. Whether people have and had a go, perhaps that's happened in practice before, but there's actually no data supporting it. Um, and then so there's also a nice little table that helps you give a practical volume based on generally the bags of fluids that are available on the wards. I know that's potentially a different case in theatres where you're making up and putting it through the pumps, um, but you can use this table to guide how much volume you need. Um, and then when you're administering it, the maximum rate through a peripheral line is usually 5 milligram per minute. Um, if you've got someone who's very sort of fluid restricted, you can push it to 10 milligram per minute, but no more than that. Um, so in your typical patient where you have a 1.5 gram dose, um, a, a practical infusion duration is about 90 minutes. Yep. And so what volume would that be as well, just to remind everyone? So at 1.5 grams, you'd need at least 500 mils. Yep. Okay, I think, and I think um, so we should talk or go a bit of a... Um, a bit of detail about the reaction that occurs if you if you give it too quickly and or um, too concentrated. Or well, it's probably the too quickly is the is the thing that causes yeah. the reaction, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm presuming you're alluding to Redman syndrome, which yep. is 
often on everyone's mind when it comes to vancomycin administration. Um, but yeah, essentially it is an infusion reaction, not an immune-mediated reaction. Um, so generally it is essentially a result of giving the, the drug reaction too fast and essentially causing histaminergic release, which can cause the flushing, the hypotension, the redness all over the skin. And obviously very distressing if you're trying to um, start someone's sort of surgical process. <laughs> yeah, and so it looks it's very similar to an anaphylactoid reaction. Mm-hmm. And Except it's maybe, hard to I'm not sure, do, do they get wheezing? That's probably the one. Can do, but it, it is yeah. sort of... Um, so, I mean, so it is basically yeah. like an anaphylactoid reaction. So yeah. they get urticarial yeah. red rashes, yeah. they get hypotension, tachycardia. They've had got massive mast cell degranulation, yeah. but yes. they won't have significantly elevated triptase levels. So right. that can be used if you're not sure what's going on. Okay. That can be used to distinguish. That's interesting. So they don't get a mast cell triptase rise. Yep. But, I mean, obviously the management is um, don't do it, or prevention, and don't, stop please don't infusion. do it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, and stop the infusion, exactly, um, which is the treatment of all in a direction. Stop yeah. giving whatever yeah. is causing it. Uh, and then manage it as per usual, you know, with adrenaline and oxygen and fluids. And I think we've all got stories of at some point in our career where maybe... No, not necessarily been involved in, but we've all heard of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It been given. Yeah, we're all aware aware of situations where we know it was given too fast, and um, and how these sorts of things have happened, and it can be a bit scary. Mm. So it's important to. I think the, this antibiotic in particular is really important to follow the guideline closely because mm. because it, um, it is very mm. easy I've, to cause I've a serious seen reaction. As well, people come with vancomycin red man syndrome listed as a, a medication allergy and that's yeah. another important thing that it's yeah. not an allergic reaction it doesn't prevent them from having vancomycin in the future yeah. it just needs to be given appropriately yeah yeah exactly so if someone has mrsa you know you don't want them to not be able to get the one antibiotic that they actually need exactly yeah, it's very useful antibiotic yeah. so if you <coughs> over um yeah so misinterpret what happened yeah yeah it can be quite for the patient in the future. All right, so I think that's really important and it's good for everyone to keep that in mind. So I guess, so one of the issues that brings up though is planning. Mm-hmm. And so obviously these this takes time. You've got to be carefully um, figure out the right dose and dilution and find the right pump and give it slowly. And it also then, you know, um, depends on how urgent the surgery is. I mean, a lot of surgery is often not emergency surgery. Um, so if it's on, say, a patient with MRSA on an elective list or something, then you have to manage that infusion appropriately so you can still manage the list as well. Mm-hmm. Starting it nice and early does give you that opportunity yeah. to monitor for any adverse reaction as well and respond to it perhaps before they've made it into the operating yeah. theatre. and at an institutional level, you've got to sort of figure out where you're going to do it. I suppose most places are probably happy to do it on a ward, but maybe not always on a day surgery ward. They may, may or may not be happy, I don't know. So we're aiming to commence the infusion 60 to 90 minutes before yeah. knife to skin. Ideally, then, the, it's um, completed before induction of anaesthesia. That's right. But the minimum time before knife to skin would be 15 minutes. So I feel that sometimes for the emergency cases we get, there is still the opportunity to get the infusion started 15 minutes before actually surgery starts. Yeah, 100%. So as you said, prior to knife to skin that's your best time like we know that's when you're going to have good levels of vancomycin in your body before um before incision but as you said emergencies happen all the time can't wait 90 minutes for someone to have the right antibiotics so at least 15 minutes before incision and they've shown that that still achieves adequate um, tissue and blood concentration of vancomycin 
um, during the surgery. Um, and for those cases that might be over and done with quite quickly and bank is still running, that's okay. The infusion can actually be completed after the surgery is finished um, or after incision. So that's okay that's as long good. as you get it in them. <laughs> um, all right, so the next antibiotic down the list. So often if someone has an allergy to like a beta-lactam or penicillin, we, we um, sometimes use this for a surgical prophylaxis, clindamycin. Mm-hmm tips and tricks for the for people there? So yeah, Clint is um, <laughs> very, very useful, um, particularly if you do have very immediate or severe um, allergy reaction to any beta-lactams. Um, something to note that King Eddie's in particular, clindamycin resistance is increasing, so it is important to be really aware of that. Um, so um, if we're giving it for like um, surgical prophylaxis where we're trying to cover the skin bugs, will that be an issue or not? Um, it's more when they're using it for group B strep prophylaxis down yeah. in labour and birth suites. So those those isolates can be quite resistant as well. But right. usually you'd have the susceptibility ideally before it comes to okay. the crunch. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, in this case, you've still got very good gram positive um, and anaerobic coverage as well. Um, but yeah, it's usually quite a lot easier to administer <laughs> compared to vancomycin in particular. Yeah. But it still needs to be quite slowly. So your usual 600 milligram dose, you do need to dilute it and run it over at least 20 to 30 minutes. So let's just um, tease a bit out. So what's the standard dose? Is it 600 milligrams for everyone? Or is there any Generally, dose calculations required or is it just 600 for everyone? 600 is pretty across standard across the board yep. now. Um, but historically, we have seen some 900 milligram doses, um, but they sort of have been reviewed recently and found that 600 is quite adequate. Okay. And what happens when you give it quickly, or what can happen? So, yeah, um, I think, Jodie, you were alluding to this earlier, but it can drop your blood pressure quite quickly, so it can cause quite severe hypotension. And, Jodie, you've found... Arrhythmias as well. Yeah. yeah. Cardiac. And I must admit that I'm probably not... Well, I definitely do give it slower than I used to, but I, I have. I, I know I have given it as a push in the past, um, yeah. and uh, I can't... Luckily, uh, nothing bad has happened, but I'm definitely going to be giving it slower yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm but you get more nervous as you get older you just got to do things more before you realize that um, some of the things in the textbooks are real <laughs> shouldn't, i shouldn't be admitting to this and a very small note um the storage of clindamycin is always changing <laughs> so yeah, the so moment's in the fridge in the fridge yeah that's right yeah, yeah. so i've often i was in theater the other day just observing and they were trying to find it on the trolley and it was like mm. it's in the fridge yeah okay but it, you're saying that the, the storage is changing, so like it's at times it's been allowed to be Dep- out of the fridge? Depends on the, the manufacturer, manufacturer and the okay. brand that we have at the time, yeah. so I'll okay. just always say check So it with sounds like local. it's relatively stable. If you took it out of the fridge for a few hours or it's been out for a day, it's probably still all right? Or what? Honestly, it depends on the product, so right. um, yeah, it's just very brand specific at the okay. moment. So just do whatever we, whatever, whatever it says. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the final one, which is something that's probably used the most often out of the three that we chose, gentamicin, but still this it's good to go over the important points about how to use it safely. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us a, re, a refresher? Yeah, so um, gentamicin, we probably use that a bit more in, in women's health than, than sort of other general hospitals because it does have the very, very good gram-negative cover. Um, so it's part of what we call our triple therapy where um, you have amoxicillin, um, metronidazole and gentamicin. Um, so we do see it quite often in the hospital. 
And as vancomycin, gentamicin does have very big risks of ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity. So do need to be mindful and make sure that we're dosing appropriately and not going over maximum doses as well. All right. So shall we, do you want to explain to us how, to, how do we choose the dose and then how do we, how do yeah. we give it? So um, traditionally, ideal body weight has been used for gentamicin, and that's basically because it's hydrophilic. So if you were to try and dose it on someone's actual body weight, um, you you would basically overdose them because yep. it will sit in there like sort of body water fluids rather than going into lipophilic tissue. Um, however, there's been a bit of a movement to now adjusted body weight for gentamicin. So. For underweight, healthy and overweight, you use their actual body weight, but if they're obese class 1 or 2, it is adjusted body weight now, um, which is a bit of a different calculation yeah. for which so, you need ideal body so weight. Cl- so when you say class 1 and 2 obesity, um, is that BMI 30 or 35? Or what's yeah, that? so up, up to a BMI greater than 30. Okay. And then BMI greater than 35. What is, the f- what is the formula? Just remind us, what is the formula for ideal body weight and adjusted body weight? How are they different? I wrote it down. Did you? Okay. I, I suddenly realised I thought I was going to throw you <laughs> no, under the bus here. <laughs> I've done my best to commit them to memory, but there's just Because I always, always, I mean, everyone's got a smartphone. Most people can do, look it up. But and if it's one of those things where you can't remember, the ETG does have both of them written down. There's lots yep. of calculators that you can find online. So they're always easy, but... Essentially, ideal body weight um, for men, 50 kilos plus 0.9 kilo per centimetre over 152 centimetres. Yep. For women, same situation, but 45.5 kilos plus 0.9 kilo per centimetre over 152 centimetres. And then your adjusted body weight is your ideal body weight plus 0.4 times actual body weight minus ideal body weight. I'm definitely Googling that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going it's to memorize that. a friendly <laughs> pharmacist who will do whatever the yeah. phone for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so more recently the gentamicin dosing is on their normal body weight if they're sort of normalish weight or their adjusted body weight um, if their BMI is greater than 30. But if your BMI is greater than 35, you'd likely be calling the experts um, in micro for their opinion. And so when people are on a course of gentamicin, usually, um, you know, traditionally, obviously, they get levels and people discuss, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the pharmacy um, what the next dose should be. But sometimes, you know, the, emer- the first dose is often given in a sort of an emergency mm-hmm. or urgent situation where you're worried about someone having sepsis, etc. Mm-hmm. So I guess... I mean, most of the time, I don't think you guys would get a phone call about that dose, would you? So, Not usually. But yes, it's, it's pretty common, or most of the time you guys liaise with people to, to sort of for the ongoing dosing management. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's another What's thing. the most common mistake Sorry. you see with the initial dose? Was that was what I was trying to get to in a circum... <laughs> in a long yeah. way so, um, mistakes do people make in your head you're always thinking milligram per kilogram thinking what actual weight you're using actual ideal adjusted is all very confusing and also just knowing that there is a cap to that maximum dose so if you calculate someone's milligram per kilogram dose and it's above 480 yep. just remember the absolute max is 480 milligrams okay so you don't give yeah, so more don't give over that so that's yep. good take home point for people listening mm-hmm. uh Sorry, what was your question? Well, I, I know I was just commenting that, you know, it is quite complex and sometimes 
particularly at this hospital, they're coming up for emergency section, they're febrile, they need triples. Someone's just scribbled the dose there and then where to give it. But actually there's some onus on us as well to be checking that this is the appropriate dose because this is a drug that can be dangerous for patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right. And some of the listeners who listen to this are um, staff that work down in labour ward and things and they often, I know, you know, on the wards and labour ward and ED and MAFA and things, you know, they someone spikes a fever or looks sick they get given their first dose of triples and mm-hmm. it's good for us to all know how to how to safely calculate that first dose all right any other final comments about um, um, i suppose just touch on administration very quickly yep. um noticing that most of your reference and things will tell you that gentamicin can be given as a slow IV push, but it does mean slow, so over yeah. at least three to five minutes. So um, if someone does have a patient hand, that can be facilitated, but often if you're in that moment where you're panicking, trying to get the dose in, um, giving it that way can sort of be a bit uneven and just sort of random little pushes in the syringe. So it would be sort of more practical and allow sort of easier and more consistent administration if you do just dilute it, pop it up in a bag 50 to 200 mils and sort of infuse it over half an hour just so then you know it's up it's doing steady administration you can put it up almost forget yeah. about it kind of thing that's so right and it probably is actually easier like um yeah. less labor to make up a bag because mm. then you can do other things because um, there's a lot of tasks that we need to do or for us anyway in theater mm. and we're doing the anesthetic it's it's hard to just stand there and devote you to slowly drip something <laughs> in. <laughs> to slowly drip something in you've got so many other things you yeah. need to do yeah it's really been really useful. I think um, I think we've covered a lot of really useful stuff. So thanks, Claire and Jody. Um, any final comments? I think my take home. This is my personal my take home points that I've learnt when sort of you know we've been discussing all these things is that um, microbiologists are very useful people and they're very helpful. And they, whenever I've had a patient, and I'm not sure about the micro alert or what um, therapy to give them. If you phone them, they have access to all the records on this patient. They look it up on online and they can tell you all these really insightful things about what um, you should be doing and it's always a good idea to phone them if you're not sure. Um, that's one thing I've learned over the last few years. Um, and also, I think, you know, just be more careful with some of these antibiotics. Um, they're not all like beta-lactams, which are pretty forgiving. Absolutely. Yeah. So we give beta-lactams and, you know, it's like flushing saline in and so we but then they're not all the same <laughs> yeah. all right thanks Good. thank you for having me cheers <laughs> thanks for listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.